Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubervac at Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. A uh, interesting week this week, Ross, in, in the news. We had, uh, of course, the election and everything that has uh, transpired since the election. We're still in the midst of counting every single vote. As we record. Yes, as we record in, in many things. So uh, the, the count is changing by the minute. Uh, we thought what we would do is take a look at uh, some of the large tech initiatives that took place that showed up on ballots this week and talk a little bit about those that happened at the state level. And we'd also hit on some of what we saw in the aftermath of the election, uh, the, the role that, that Twitter and Facebook played and and specifically how they labeled some of the, the their tweets and restricted sharing. And, and perhaps this uh, signals their path forward and, and what that might look like, but, but obviously still a lot more, um, a lot more to come. Uh, so first let's jump into some of the, the ballot initiatives that were on different state uh, that were pushed forward at different states. California had probably the most noteworthy ballot initiative proposition 22 it uh, easily passed in California, passing by 58.4%. And Proposition 22 allows gig workers for platforms like Lyft, Uber, and, and DoorDash to remain as independent contractors. They will not be classified as, as employees. It essentially overturns AB5, which passed in 2019, which would allow, uh, which, which would have given gig workers the same protection as full-time workers, essentially giving them minimum access to minimum wage and other uh, you know, re requirements that uh, exist under the current law with respect to your workers. So um, obviously Uber, Lyft and others lobbied quite hard for this, spending approximately $200 million uh, leading up to the, to the vote. They uh, pushed out pushed out uh, advertisements, I suppose, if you will, and, and, and posts through their app, encouraging people to, to vote for California Proposition 22. Uh, and so we have uh, definitely a commitment here to the, the gig economy. Some see it as the, the gig platforms exerting their, their uh, might and, and pushing that. But we also see California voters, presumably they could make a, an informed decision and uh, they, they vote to pass this. What's your read on this, Ross? And what do you think that this, uh, this moves us forward? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a huge victory for uh, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, uh, DoorDash, uh, companies like that. Uh, you mentioned the 200 million. It's hard to imagine a ceiling uh, for which it, it wouldn't be worth it for these companies to uh, put put all they they have uh, behind it because if if they are no longer able to classify these uh, these workers as uh, as contractors, uh, it, it not only uh, raises costs for them tremendously, but uh, it reduces a lot of the flexibility uh, in in which they can they can offer service. They would have probably had to. Uh, reduce uh, certain levels of service uh, across California. Uh, and of course, the thing they are 
even more concerned about is whether it would start a domino effect um, in which other states would also force these uh, these kinds of requirements. Uh, so, um, you know, I, they, uh, the uh, this, the companies made the case that uh, a lot of the workers, certainly I'm sure not all, but, but you know, at least a, a good portion of the workers preferred uh, the contract arrangement. They preferred the uh, ability to set their own hours. Um, you know, for some of them, it's not their primary in, uh, means of income or their only job. Uh, it's it's a, a side job uh, and, uh, and they like that level of flexibility. So, uh, you know, the question I think becomes what are some things we can do uh, from a public policy perspective to better protect uh, these, uh, you know, the, these, these uh, contractors and at least offer them an opportunity to opt in to some of the same kinds of benefits that, uh, that employees have, uh, but without necessarily making them adhere to the traditional full-time or part-time structure. Uh, and there has been some, some good dialogue about that. It seems that Uber for one is, is open to that. Uh, but, um, and it, it's something that I think that, uh, uh, you know, government, uh, uh, government officials and advocates should push for uh, under the specter of, you know, uh, trying to bring this kind of legislation back. You know, if, if you won't, uh, it's like the self-regulatory self argument, you know, okay, if you are not, you know, if you're not going to offer better protection and benefits for these workers, then, you know, we will push legislation that puts you into constraints that you, you really dislike. Yeah. You know, arguably the, this not passing in California probably makes it very difficult to, to see it pass in any other state. Uh, I w California mm. would have been the one to, to really lead this charge. Maybe it shows up in, in the Northwest. Maybe it shows up in, in uh, the Northeast. But uh, outside of those areas, it's hard to imagine any, point. any states pushing this forward. Uh, with a presumably a, a Biden presidency, maybe this is something that's that's picked up uh, and and pushed at the federal level. Though I think that will be equally difficult, uh, given the what the Congress is looking like. So um, it looks like for now, at least this, uh, you know, definitely keeps the contractor relationship in, in place and probably means the expansion of gig platforms. We'll see gig platforms expand forward. It's a, a business model that seems to work for the, uh, you know, for the platforms questionable if it's working for the employees or not to your point, many of them are not relying on this as their primary or, or single source of income. And, uh, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see if the, the uh, platforms can expand. We also did see Uber announce earnings this week. Uh, ride sharing, as you would guess, was down uh, during the quarter. But uh, delivery services, as you would also guess, were, were up significantly. Uh, you know, this was a, a business that really wasn't working very well for Uber. And, uh, and then we, we see that, uh, you know, a pandemic sets in and all of a sudden delivery services start to make economic sense. So the business, that piece of the business is starting to really mature um, given the, the current environment. Uh, but it looks like, you know, gig, the gig economy structure 
the the gig platform structure with contract workers is going to remain intact at least for now, and uh, and probably will will lead to uh, other gig platforms uh, using using the same type of approach. Uh, we also saw California pass what was called the Consumer Personal Information Law and Agency Initiative, aka Proposition Twenty Four. Was a uh, privacy initiative. It calls for the creation of a new enforcement agency for California's privacy law, starting with a, a annual ten million dollar budget, and it expands the type of information that consumers can opt out of sharing. Um, unfortunately, consumers will still need to opt out of protection, so it isn't uh, protection by default. Uh, we saw it increases the the fines, triples the fines for companies that violate kids' privacy. Or, or share or collect other information. It also kind of lumps in sharing with selling. The, private, the previous privacy initiatives and, and laws and rules uh, didn't really encompass this idea of sharing data. So a lot of the, the platforms said, well, we're not selling your data, we're sharing your data. Uh, Proposition 24 created a, a new category of sensitive personal information, SPI, which includes things like race, sexuality, religion, and health data. And so businesses must dis now disclose to users if they plan to collect, share, or sell that, uh, that data. Kind of interesting to see where the Electronic Frontier Foundation and uh, ACLU uh, lined up on this. Uh, maybe, maybe not the side that one might have expected, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting ready to say. We yeah. saw the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU of Northern California, both, which would normally be strong advocates for privacy, uh, were opposed to Proposition 24. Uh, they were concerned that it would create a pay-for-privacy structure because ultimately companies under the, the guidelines of uh, Proposition 24 can still withhold certain perks or other services from consumers who do who choose not to share their data, so it does create an environment where, hey, we'll give you this in exchange for your data. Obviously, the ACLU of Northern California is concerned that um, it can sometimes be harmful to communities of color, and they can be vulnerable to to uh, you know individuals who can't afford a service might be inclined to share their data for access to that service for free or at a, at a reduced cost so there creates some concerns there so it was interesting that you saw two groups that uh, generally are, are very strong defenders of privacy come come out in, in opposition of uh, proposition 24 uh, but it also passed by a, a pretty wide margin passing 56 to 44 that anymore, you know, it seems like in our, our world of elections is a very wide margin. Um, so uh, enforcement for that will begin in 2023. So we've got a little bit of a runway to get things up and running. If you know your business that's making less than 25 million in revenues, you're exempt. Many of the credit card, uh, you know, credit reporting giants like Expedian, Equifax, and Experian—they're both. Um, exempt from a lot of the provisions. So there are some exemptions in, in place. Mm. But we see uh, in California, stronger uh, privacy provisions going into place. And some of this is obviously taking a look at what took place in Europe with uh, their privacy initiatives and G GDPR. 
So you've got uh, California doing a little bit more and presumably other states will follow. Maybe we'll see a, a national framework implemented around the collecting, sharing, and, and selling of data among, uh, among users. Yeah, to your point, Sean, about you know, what the uh, presumably incoming administration might prioritize on, uh, especially if um, you know, the uh, congressional houses uh, remain uh, split between the parties, this seems like a, a prime candidate. Um, you know, privacy regulation seems to have strong bipartisan uh, support. Uh, there's good precedent for it in, in Europe. There's uh, seems to make a lot more sense to have a national policy than to have uh, each state uh, have, have its own uh, policy. So California, of course, has been out in front uh, on this and continues to be out in front. And, uh, you know, again, unlike uh, the, the employee policy that, that you just mentioned, I think this is the kind of uh, regulatory posture that I, I think would play well um, in, in many parts of the country. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I do think it makes a lot of sense to have a, a national uh series of, of rules and regulations. And, and arguably what we do tend to see is that, you know, once companies have to abide by certain state regulations, then they tend to follow those at the, at the national level. So we'll probably see a lot of companies implement the, the needed requirements of, of proposition right. 24 to um, we'll see that, you know, rolled out nationwide. I mean, it, it, you know, at some point uh, in one of Zuckerberg's congressional testimonies, he he said he would like to see it. You know, he, uh, so let's uh, you know maybe we should give him his wish. Yeah, they don't want to you know don't break us up, but right. uh, definitely we're, we're happy. Give to, us guidance. Yeah, that's right. We're happy yeah. to imp- impose some uh, some re- regulation and some some clarity. Um, so I think that uh, is something we'll see. We we saw a number of privacy-related initiatives pass in a number of jurisdictions in Portland, Maine. Voters uh, voted to ban the use of facial recognition by police and city agencies, something that will be in, in effect for at least five years, cannot be overturned for the next five years. It also entitles citizens who are... Um, subject to a facial recognition scan by police to a, a fee, I guess, a fine um, of the, the, the police of at least a million, or excuse me, at least a thousand dollars. So um, we saw. And, and, and that's one, you know, that I, I can see playing a lot better in Portland, which is, you know, generally not a big uh, terrorism target, you know, as opposed to my hometown or, uh, you know, where, where you are. Uh, where and or even uh, you know big cities like London where it's been uh, uh, pervasive you know cameras are everywhere um, um, so and and you know there the the public safety um, imperative you know may may outweigh uh, the potential privacy uh, violations so um, rather than an outright ban you know maybe there's there's more regulation that needs to be done around what can be done with the data that's collected, uh, for example. So, Yeah, I think you, you bring up a really interesting point. I mean, your argument, Ross, is that citizens in New York, residents in New York, 
recognize the cost of facial recognition, but they also recognize the potential cost of not having facial recognition. Um, and, you know, if you look at, at the, the Boston bombing mm-hmm. that happened during the marathon, I mean, the, the cameras that were, were deployed were then heavily used. They tried to gather all of that footage and piece together a, a, a more full photo of what was going on. Uh, I don't think they really used facial recognition in the traditional sense there, but they did use all of those, that, that camera, the footage, uh, yeah, yeah, the footage. And then arguably you could run that today through, through facial recognition programs and, and, uh, and mm-hmm. try to identify people more quickly. So it, it does seem like urban settings and your point of London are much more um, amenable to some of that technology. Uh, we also saw Michigan pass a, uh, if you call it a, a privacy uh, regulation, Proposition 20-2 requires a search warrant for all electronic data and communication. A couple other states have already done this, Missouri, New Hampshire. Uh, so this essentially protects electronic data from unreasonable search. And, the, and there had been some Supreme Court cases that had looked at this, but uh, we see citizens really in, in a number of different states voting to protect their digital data from, um, from unreasonable search. And so I think that's something that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see move forward in a lot of other states as well, uh, trying to create rules and regulations around what data can be captured by municipalities, by states, and, and how they can use that data. So it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition that's happening right now, because there's a, a lot happening, as we alluded to at the beginning, around what you can say on Twitter, and what you can't, what you can say on Facebook, and what you can't. And, and for the most part, that is today being regulated by those platforms. But you also have citizens coming out and saying, hey, here's what we want to uh, states to have control over and here's here's what we don't want them to have control over mm-hmm. here's how we want data uh that that we have being able to use by by state so th- this obviously has been a, a storyline that it has been building for years and it really in many ways feels like a defining story for the next decade which is how all of this data is is uh, being used and being conveyed both by municipalities, but also by, by the platforms. So there's been a, a number of actions uh, uh, by, uh, by, by both of those uh, major social networks in terms of uh, labeling uh, certain, certain claims um, about uh, you know, potential voter fraud as, uh, as, as misleading. There was uh, an incident with uh, Steve Bannon uh, sharing some footage that called for um, uh, a, 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 a rather, um, you know, uh, a, a rather, um, you know, suffering demise to uh, Anthony Fauci and, uh, and, and Christopher Wray. Uh, and so, uh, you know, both, both networks have, have stepped up their, their labeling, uh, taking measures such as uh, labeling, uh, banning uh, uh, the Steve Bannon account, um, at the uh, Facebook uh, claiming that that they will introduce more friction uh, in, in you know during and, and uh, you know in the months uh, following the election or for some 
amount of time following um, you know, the final election results. And uh, an interesting, uh, to me, the most interesting uh, announcement from Twitter saying that if, uh, if uh, Trump um, you know, vacates the White House in January, that he will lose some of the special protections that uh, have been afforded to him, uh, privileges, I should say, not protections, privileges afforded to him in terms of uh, allowing certain, certain kinds of uh, uh, tweets. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, I think it raises a lot of questions. It, uh, my kind of take on it is that as a lot of this kind of, of these, this misinformation and these, these baseless allegations were uh, rampant on, on social media, and you know there was still this. I, I've I've also seen coverage talking about how there was still uh, quite quite a lot of it spreading across Facebook. You know, I, I don't think any of them have done perfect policing, but I think we can give credit uh, to them for taking decisive action to re reduce it uh, substantially uh, during the election, and you know perhaps the election results uh, in in part reflect. Uh, you know, that effort. But, um, but I, I kind of see that, you know, the, that uh, uh, the, this phenomenon of misinformation and, and, and inciting of violence, uh, you know, the, a lot of this spread in kind of the, during the 2016 election, when Facebook and Twitter were, I think, either kind of caught surprised by it, or were unaware of it, or were you know, trying to take a hands-off approach or just hadn't, just kind of reckoned with it, I, I guess is the, the best way I can describe it. And then of course, you know, during the past four years, uh, there was this idea of, well, you know, this, this is the, the government uh, and, you know, he, you know, Donald Trump is, is the leader, uh, is the president. So, you know, we have to respect that office um, uh, and, you know, respect the importance of the messenger uh, regardless of the content of the message. And so now, you know, uh, as he may be leaving office, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because both of those uh, doors are at least partially closing, right? He, he no longer may have the office of the presidency uh, as that uh, incentive um, for, for networks to, social media networks to support uh, his messaging. And, uh, and you know now now they're aware of the impact of of a lot of uh, what what he has said, uh, and you know the rise of groups like like QAnon and and you know hate speech and and you know inciting of violence and, and things like that. So um, so it's uh, you know I I've read a number of articles about uh, what what does the po what does what is the future of Trumpism, uh, you know, if, if he vacates the White House, uh, certainly he will continue to have, uh, you know, a, a, a huge media platform, a huge audience, um, you know, after he, after he leaves office, assuming he leaves office. Uh, the question is, what form does that take? You know, can he rely on, on social networks? Can he rely on, on the viral nature of his message spreading? Uh, or does he go to kind of a more traditional uh, media play like, you know, Trump TV, which is, you know, we've been hearing about uh, even before the 2016 uh, election or during the 2016 election. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, a, a related question for me is what, uh, you know, to what extent do Republicans continue to, uh, to emphasize this, this notion of, quote, censorship, uh, which was something that I think Trump uh, spearheaded uh, quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, if there are, you know, the open question is if, if there's less incendiary uh, stuff coming out of the administration, obviously there's you know, less reason to quote, censor it or restrict that speech. So do Republicans you know, become more moderate? Uh, are, are we starting to see a sign of that now that you know, relatively few of them are backing his claims, uh, the, the you know, conspiracy theories uh, around the election and allegations of, of widespread fraud uh, that, that don't seem to have any basis, so. Yeah, well, and I think, you know, the point that you brought up about these platforms restricting the sharing and creating some friction in mm-hmm. the platform, I think is a, a really interesting deviation from uh, what's made these platforms so big and powerful. Uh, right. You know, it was about making information readily available, making it as easy to share within that platform as possible. Now, if you want to share it outside the platform, it's much more difficult. But if you want to share anything, you know, within the platform, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, it, it tends to be pretty easy to to share it within the platform. And now they're creating some some friction there. So I think that's you know a really interesting shift in how we're thinking about uh, about digital data moving forward. A lot of it's been the, this focus on uh, how can we make this information as readily available, how can we share it as readily available, and and, and as quickly as possible. And now it's like, well, hold on, maybe we don't want that shared as quickly as possible. Maybe we do want to uh, limit access to that information, even though it's, it's essentially pushed out in a, a public environment or, you know, a, a public way. Um, and so you, you have some really interesting, you know, developments that I think are, are happening. I mean, we have it on the on the state initiatives, all of these ballot initiatives that are pushing for greater privacy. And in most cases, I mean, we did see Massachusetts pass a law that uh, essentially is a right to repair law for vehicles will give owners of cars and, and uh, independent mechanics greater access to the wireless data. So there they want data to be more widely shared. But everywhere else we see kind of a, a general push to to share less data and and with the social media platforms definitely making it uh, a bit more difficult to share information to see some information uh, labeling information um, it's also clearly going to create an entirely new service that these companies are going to have to have to deliver which is you know how do we what do we label how do we label it um, they've they've had to do that at at a presidential uh, you know, level lately, but might not be the end of, of what they do. I mean, you know, these platforms have never been completely open gates, right? Uh, you know, there have been, uh, there's been a lot of reporting on the massive staffs uh, that Facebook, for example, uh, employ to censor out, uh, you know, violent imaging and yeah. child pornography and all this, you know, horrible uh, stuff that, you know, people feel compelled to, to upload for some reason. Um, and, uh, and so, it, you know, I think a lot of some of it, Sean, goes back to the discussion we had last week about Section 230 and, you know, how these networks are protected. 
maybe some of it is just that you know Facebook and Twitter have now reached a scale uh, where they feel that they can uh, put in some of these limitations without necessarily harming the business. Maybe they they understand that you know uh, if they continue to uh, fan such incendiary flames uh, that it targets them more for regulation. Um, may, I, I would argue that it just contributes to a, a negative user experience. You yes. know, we, we, we would always, uh, you know, see all of these privacy allegations against Facebook and all, all of these scandals and, and the membership numbers would just keep going up. And, and now it's kind of leveled off, right? Uh, or I think it's even started to shrink yeah. Uh, a little bit. Um, so, uh, and, and there's been um, advertiser revolt, right? Uh, although, you know, Facebook hasn't really uh, uh, bowed to that uh, very, very much. But, um, uh, but you know, the, I, I think that there's just uh, reached a point where uh, there's just been too much pressure put on them. And it's going to be a mix of human intervention and algorithms, as, as we discussed last week. Yeah, and I, and I think you bring up a great point about it creating a a less satisfactory user experience. I think that really is a lot lot of the motivation. I mean, I think they're probably internally these companies are definitely concerned about uh, potential regulation or, or blowback from prop, you know, from from continuing to to support or uh, to to spread uh, information that's in inaccurate, right? The, the spread of disinformation. Um, but I think that really does come down to the user experience. And it makes me think of the, the, the Gmail feature where you can essentially recall a message that you've just sent, right? They, they put in that short delay mm-hmm. from when it's sent to when it's delivered in case you hit send too quickly or you wanted to add something or you caught a grammar error after you hit send. Just that, that small, subtle delay uh, creates a different user experience. I, so I think this idea is a, a really interesting one around the, the flow of data and the flow of information is that we're just going to slow it down just a little bit. We realize that uh, accelerating that at all costs leads to an inferior experience. And so now mm-hmm. let's let's slow it down just a little bit. Let's, you know, to your point, let's use human together with algorithms to label that information. And then let's uh, see if we can create a, a better experience. So I think there's uh, some really interesting developments taking place there. Well, that's probably a great place to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for joining this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I am Sean Dubrovac at Avrio Institute. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin.